Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU's website at WERU.org, as well as the WERU app for your smartphone. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am your host for Common Ground Radio. Today on Common Ground Radio, we are speaking uh, with a couple guests here around the campaign to stop GE trees and specifically talking about the uh, GE American Chestnut project that is going on here in the US. And I'd like to introduce my guests here for the show and then give them a chance to come back around and speak a little bit more to the work that they do. Um, but first I'd like to introduce Ann Peterman and Ann is co-founder and executive director of Global Justice Ecology Pro Project and co-founder and international coordinator of the Campaign to Stop GE Trees. So Anne, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Um, and we also have Lois and Dennis Mellican, who are retired from the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation, Division of State Parks. Lois was a regional interpretive coordinator and Dennis a park supervisor, with most of his career spent at Moore State Park in Paxton home of the largest rhododendron collection in New England, along with 94 foot waterfalls. So Lois and Dennis, I'd like to thank you for being here on the, sh on the show with me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting us. And then if we just circle back around, I think Anne, if I could give you the space here to just speak a little bit about the work that you do in general, and then we can get into specifics around uh, the GE Chestnut for today. Sure, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the Executive Director of Global Justice Ecology Project, and what GJEP, um, the mission of GJEP is actually looking not just at specific issues like genetically engineered trees, but how those issues bring together issues relating to um, economic injustice, social injustice, and ecological destruction. And for us, the genetically engineered trees issue is a perfect example of that. Um, the social injustice that is being driven by industrial forestry, which is really at the heart of genetically engineered trees, um, has been a major focus of our work since our founding. But we also work on related issues. We've been looking at the connections between COVID and environmental destruction in places like uh, Indonesia and China, the last primeval forest being destroyed and how that's bound to release more viruses into the future. Um, the connection between um, economic, the economic system that we're seeing and all of the different global crises that are going on from the water crisis to the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, as well as um, the different social uh, injustices and crises that are happening all over our planet. So we try to look at how all those weave together. That's our, that's our mission. Great. Thank you, Anne. And Lois, you and, and Dennis there speak a little bit about, about the work that you've done in the past and currently. Okay, um, like I say, we are both retired from the state park system in Massachusetts. We actually planted the first chestnut orchard on state property in 2003. Um, we have been, we were former members of the Chestnut Foundation 
We joined in 2003 and we left in 2018 because of the genetic engineering um, that they were doing that we did not really agree with. But so we're, we're still currently involved in a lot of chestnut work. We have um, an educational program going with a local regional junior high school of seventh graders who learn about this, this chestnut tree, the chestnut story as part of the sustainability uh, class. And they, they have a chestnut orchard at their school. Uh, we're also working with the town of Munson, Massachusetts. Um, they had a tornado that went through Munson in 2011 and it took all the trees down off the top of a small mountain in that town. And lo and behold, five years later, when they, after they cleared the dead wood and the trees started growing up, it was a chestnut hotspot. There was chestnut trees everywhere. So we are um, working on chestnut reforestation project there. We also work currently with the Worcester Tree Initiative at um, Green Hill Park in Worcester, uh, where they have some chestnut trees planted there. And um, also with um, Tower Hill Botanic Garden in Worcester, has uh, chestnut trees growing naturally there. So we're, um, it's in Boylston, Mass. So we're working with them also on chestnut trees. So we still have lots of chestnut projects going. And we're also looking at chestnuts more as a food crop uh, with organic chestnut growers who are growing um, hybrid chestnuts, which are, um, you know, kind of a new food thing coming along here. Okay, great. Thank you. I think to kind of get some foundational information for, for listeners for the show, could either of you speak just a little bit about the history and the background of the American chestnut? Why don't, Lois, why don't you handle that one? Okay, yeah. Um, well, the chestnut was one of the most prominent trees um, all up and down the Appalachian mountain chain um, until probably about in the, at the turn of the century, around 1900, they discovered uh, chestnut blight. And of course, that was at the time when they were starting to import a lot of, you know, imported, you know, fashion, not fashion, like, um, what am I trying to say here? Trees for estate, estate plantings and stuff like that. So that's when they started importing trees. So on, on some imported trees from China, they, the, there was chestnut blight, which the, chest, the chestnut trees in China and in the Eastern, you know, they, those trees actually grew up with, you know, evolved with the chestnut blight. So they were able to, um, you know, withstand the chestnut blight. Whereas when they, when it got to the American trees, the American trees had absolutely no resistance to chestnut blight. So approximately, how many trees then were, were four billion? Four billion trees were lost in a period of like you know twenty or thirty years. So by like 1950, you know, most of the population tree of chestnut trees was absolutely decimated. Um, but, you know, shortly after that, a lot of people started doing, um, you know, trying to, how can we fix this? So I think the most, the long, longest running program is at the Connecticut Agricultural Station. They've been hybridizing chestnut trees for- uh, Since 1930. Yeah, since 1930. So, and they, that program is still going on, so. Um, I could add that um, by 1950, <clears throat> they, had essentially disappeared. And by 1960, the USDA suspended all research and it was a, a, a broad consensus of opinion that the chestnuts were done for and that they were never going to come back. So the forest moved on, but luckily a retired professor in Minnesota was curious about why had the earlier attempts to bring the species back failed. 
and he realized they had made an elementary breeding mistake. And if they did it a different way of multiple uh, back cross generations searching for the most American characteristics and light resistance, and then an intercross generation, you would be able to produce a 93.7% American chestnut tree that um, the only non-American genetic material was from the inherited from the Chinese parent that uh, conferred blight resistance. So um, we thought that it, it was a wonderful thing when it was first brought to our attention at the park and we immediately got involved and were happily tending a 233 tree chestnut orchard. Um, and everything was good. And uh, the foundation is divided up into state chapters. And we had read early on that the New York chapter was um, uh, experimenting with the using forest biotechnology to bring the tree back. And that raised our alarm bells, but we were reassured that you, you don't have to worry because they will have to pass the dreaded regulatory gauntlet. And now we all know that that's a farce uh, uh, under the current administration, but we just thought we went along with it because we thought that's right. It has to go through the regulatory agencies and little did we know, and we did not know until the Global Justice Ecology Project did a brilliant white paper that uh, that uh, expressed what the real facts were about the corporate support for using genetic engineering. And the th one thing I want to say quickly is one thing that really bothers me the most is this implied sense of urgency that from the GMO advocates that we must embrace genetic engineering to bring the chestnut back or else there will never be chestnuts in the United States. And that's laughable on its face. We saw the chestnuts at uh, Sleeping Giant State Park in Connecticut. Like Lois said, the products of the uh, longest continuously operated breeding program for chestnuts in the country for 90 years. There's thousands of chestnuts there. And this is to say nothing of the organic growers we know of a really uh, good growing operation in Vermont, in Berlin, Vermont called Perfect Circle Farm. We know of Don Kynes in West Virginia. We know the progress made by the uh, chestnut growers in Southern Michigan supported by the university there are developing a, a chestnut industry that is a, a boon to farm to table restaurants and everybody interested in making healthier uh, food choices. So, and the same is true with Missouri. So there's, and we know of several growers, organic growers in Massachusetts who began growing out hybrid chestnuts a few years ago. So it's a year to year thing, but it's a, uh, it's, it's literally a growing industry with an expanding market and there's so much good about all chestnut varieties that um, it's, it's, it's wrong to suggest that we can only have chestnuts in our lives if we embrace genetic engineering. And that's, 
Not true. There's no rush. With, they've been gone since uh, before 1950. The forests have moved on. It, yes, it would be wonderful to reintroduce chestnuts, but that doesn't mean we have to turn to Monsanto in order to make it happen. It would be better done in small town, school-based conservation projects with the local land trust and um, people that care about real food security. That's great, Dennis. Thank you. Some great background and and history there. I think Anne, I'd like to turn to you. And Dennis did mention the white paper that the Global Justice Ecology Project put together on the issue. And I think here is where some of the social and economic justice issues get highlighted. Is that correct? Yeah, we try to go through in the white paper, we went through the science of the genetically engineered American chestnut um, and the various areas where either the science just wasn't there um, to show that, that this was any kind of um, any kind of proof that it was safe or that the science was um, really faulty, you know, um, for example, some pollen feeding studies that didn't even use transgenic pollen, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So we went through the science of it and then we went through the unknowns, you know, all of the unknowns related to genetic engineering, um, as well as some of the knowns, like the fact that genetic engineering uh, leads to unpredictable impacts in the organisms that have been engineered and all kinds of mutations in the DNA of those individuals. You know, we went through all of that. And then we, yes, we, then we got into some of the economics behind it. What are the, the companies that are backing this research? What are their motivations? And um, how do they interrelate with each other in these different corporate consortia? And how does that, how are they then involved directly or indirectly with the research going on? For example, in the uh, in ESF, SUNY ESF in Syracuse, New York. And then we get into the greater issues of industrial forestry. So, you know, the plan as we see it for these genetically engineered American chestnut trees is based on the historical record uh, is that industry needed a tree a charismatic tree, if you will, to open the door to other industrial genetically engineered trees like poplars and pines that they could not get people to go along with. So there was this huge public opposition in the US and all around the world, but they needed a tree for quote unquote conservation that would encourage people to you know, to open their minds to genetic engineering and trees. And so they're using the chestnut for that purpose. But even the American Chestnut Foundation, which is the, one of the great proponents of these genetically engineered chestnuts, admits in one of their fact sheets that approval of the GE chestnut would open the door wide to um, transgenic trees for other purposes. So that's what we're really concerned about is not just the impacts of this particular tree in the Eastern forest ecosystems, which in itself could be quite catastrophic, but the global implications of these trees. If the poplars and pines get approved next, you know, they're not just for plantations here in the United States, we're talking about exporting these trees around the world, especially the pines and the eucalyptus, which is another tree being uh, engineered all over the world for expansion of industrial timber plantations, which have you know, huge track records. The non-GE 
plantations that exist have tremendous track records of social injustice, people being kicked off their lands, you know, total de destruction of forests to expand these plantations, um, monopolization of water, uh, you know, tremendous poverty rates of the communities that are surrounded by these plantations. It's, you know, it's the social injustice involved with these plantations is terrible. And if trees are genetically engineered with traits that make them more economically valuable for industry, then those plantations are going to expand. And that is one of our major concerns about this genetically engineered chestnut. It's so it's twofold. It's the impacts it will have right here in the US in the Eastern forest and in Eastern Canada, because you know, trees don't respect boundaries. And how will that then open the door to further plantations around the world? Okay, so it seems like the this GE chestnut American GE American chestnut is really kind of maybe testing the waters of public opinion for the larger transgenic tree industrial movement, I guess would be the way to say it. Exactly. They call it a test tree. Industries called it a test tree um, to see how they can open the door. We call it a Trojan horse because it looks all fine and dandy on the outside, but it will open the door to um, all of these other industrial trees that are waiting in the wings. Could one of you just speak a little bit about the genetic engineering of the chestnut? So it's for the resistant to the chestnut blight. I think that there's some traits from wheat, I believe, that I had read that was in there. Right, they engineered the American chestnut by introducing a gene from wheat along with the, um, the genes that actually enable the DNA from the wheat to invade the DNA of the chestnut. And uh, in doing so, they, you know, they disrupted that genome. So we now have an, an organism that's never existed before this American chestnut wheat tree uh, that is that they plan to put out in the environment. And they've gone through many generations of this thing. They call them, though they've had different varieties. The current variety is called Darling 58. So this is the one that they're trying to get deregulated, trying to get approved by the government. And there were several iterations of this before the Darling 58. The Darling 58 has a much higher amount of OXO, that's the, the enzyme, the antifungal enzyme that is released into every cell of the plant, uh, which is why, as I mentioned before, they did these studies to try to prove it's um, safe. So they did these pollen feeding studies for pollinators to show what the impacts would be on pollinators. They didn't use Darling 58 pollen for those studies. They used non-transgenic pollen, you know, regular old American chestnut pollen, and then they mixed some OXO from barley into that. Uh, when they did the leaf feeding studies, they didn't use Darling 58 leaves in those studies. They used Darling 4 leaves. Darling 4 was a much earlier version of the genetically engineered chestnut that does not express as much OXO in the leaves. So they have these, these supposed safety studies that are completely invalid because they don't have anything to do with the Darling 58. Um, and they're using those to try to say this thing is safe. Uh, not to mention, as I mentioned, all of the different uh, unknowns that the Federation of German Scientists put out a study looking at the impacts, the risk assessments of GE trees. And their conclusion was you can't really do proper risk assessments of GE trees. They just, they live too long. When we're talking about forest trees, that is. They live too long. They have too many interactions in a forest with all kinds of biodiversity from the soil microorganisms and soil fungus to the wildlife and songbirds and other plants, et cetera. 
plus they live so long. So they're going to be experiencing changes in the forest, especially in the climate change regime that um, are going to cause all kinds of genetic changes over time. So, you know, how will these trees respond at, at a fundamental genetic level to a long cold snap or a drought or, um, you know, tremendous storms? They don't know that and they can't know that, especially in a tree as young as the Darling 58. That tree has only been in field trials for three years and they plan to release it unmonitored, no regulations into wild forests. And it's, it's just absolutely irresponsible. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. Today we are talking with members of the Campaign to Stop GE Trees about timber industry efforts to introduce genetically engineered American chestnut trees into our eastern forests. My guests are Ann Peterman, Executive Director of the Global Justice Ecology Project and Co-Founder and International Coordinator of the Campaign to Stop GE Trees and Lois and Dennis Mellican, both retired from careers in the Massachusetts State Park System and longtime American chestnut advocates, breeders, and growers. This is a pre-recorded show, so we are not taking phone calls. Thank you. Lois and, and Dennis, to, to jump back to you, Dennis did mention that there is no urgency around getting these trees released back, back into our, our forests. And I'm just curious that if the resistance to chestnut blight seems to be the main main piece that's kind of argued about, is the only rush really just to get these trees to open the door for other other transgenic trees, where maybe markets are increasing for chestnuts as a food source, but I can't imagine that that that's the overall goal of a larger industrial uh, operation. Right. It's that that's that's is what it seems like to us. I mean, it could be just like opening the door for, for other trees. Just an interesting fact that I wanted to mention is when they first started out with this project, instead of a wheat cheesing, a wheat gene, they were using the African clawed frog was what they were going to use until they decided that, you know, public relations wise, that might not be so good because it's people would think, you know, Claude sounds good. I mean, sounds bad and using an, a live animal and all that sort of stuff. So that's when they changed over to wheat gene because it just is more acceptable, I think, to people. I mean, it just seems like that that's what it is, is to, is to open the door for other, other kind of things. I mean, in, in all of the chapters, every chapter is sort of on their own financially and, you know, organizationally wise and all that sort of stuff. And it just always kind of amazed us that the New York chapter always had so much money and we would be like passing the hat between board members to get a lawnmower. So, you know, and then we found out about an influx of money from companies like Monsanto and Arbogen. It's like, wow, well, you know what? That was just sort of a shock to us when we found that out. And when we got involved in uh, 2003, we one of the first things we learned from the Chestnut Foundation is that this is going to be a lengthy process right. that could take a hundred years. So, so that's okay. But why 15 years later are we being pressured into we need to embrace genetic engineering now to save the chestnut when give our own breeding program a chance? It it takes time. It it's not something that needs to be rushed. 
Right. And, and just because the results that they're seeing now in the Backcross breeding program aren't exactly what they expected at this point, it doesn't mean it's not working. I mean, we've seen some beautiful looking trees, you know, so the, the program will work. It just it needs the hundred years probably or more, you know, as long as the, the thing we liked about it most is engaging students and kids and other people in it, which is we thought was the great part of it. And we have a great project going with a school. And you know it's a it's a science project for these kids, but they get outdoors. They're they're learning all about trees, and it's been going on now for five years. In the first seventh grade class, there's about a half a dozen kids that are going to be graduating this June who are still involved in this project. So you know, to us, that's the way to bring back a chestnut tree: is one one town, one community, one school at a time, rather than you know farm it out to um, you know bioengineering and do it that way. And are there any efforts to have the American chestnut uh, planted in other countries or is it really just focused on the US? Well, I mean, there are, there are European chestnuts, there's Japanese chestnuts, Chinese chestnuts. So a lot, of, you know, a lot of places around the world are not having the problems that we have. There is an organization in the United States and that's um, the American Chestnut Cooperators Foundation. And they also have been you know, together since about the, the same time as the American Chestnut Foundation, you know, probably like in the, what, the mid 80s or something, early, yeah. early, you know, maybe late 70s. And they are using uh, just American trees and they're doing back cross breeding and grafting. And we just this past fall saw one of their orchards. And I mean, I couldn't believe looking at these 35 year old chestnut trees that were just, I mean, they, they, you could tell they were fighting off the blight. blight. We used to have a, a misconception of, you know, the, the tree that doesn't have the blight is gonna be a perfect looking tree. And these weren't perfect looking trees, but you could see that the, the, by the bark that they were fighting off the chestnut blight. And I never saw such good looking chestnut trees in my life. They had huge, large, dark green leaves and, you know, the nuts were, were just perfect. So that we've sort of aligned with them a little bit more and, and doing that. So we're working kind of with the American Chestnut Cooperatives Foundation on American Chestnut, which is a woodland tree. And then we're also working with chestnut um, orchardists uh, in growing a food crop. The, the difference between the American Chestnut Cooperators Foundation and the American Chestnut Foundation is that they are using only large surviving pure Americans. There are a few and they're under the radar. Um, they've been growing them out using the same back crossing technique that we were using. You grow them out and you challenge them with a blight inoculation. You uh, select uh, the survivors and you cross them again. And like Lois said, we last September, we went down to the southern end of the Blue Ridge Mountains and saw one of their orchards. And it was like being in Shangri-La. They were the healthiest, nicest looking trees. And like Lois said, you could see in the bark how they had successfully warded off the blight and they produce uh, incredibly delicious, large chestnuts. So. The difference between them too is not just that they don't incorporate any Chinese genetic material, but they don't have donors like Monsanto. They don't have offers of in-kind support from corporate mega donors. So they've just been quietly doing the work without any publicity, but they're bringing the chestnut back, but the New York Times will never consider interviewing them. 
so just in terms of the the blight just to get um to move on a little bit past this this kind of back cross breeding program i'm just trying to clarify in my own mind it seems uh back cross breeding being a lot slower but showing improvements really isn't developing a resistance to the blight to say eliminate the blight altogether but the trees have the ability to fight against the blight and survive Would correct that yeah correct? the blight is the blight is an airborne fungus it's always you know it's not going away anywhere but we want to get trees that are tolerant of that of that blight the, the simplest way to explain uh, the breeding program is uh, a baseball analogy, but a research orchard like the one we had at Moore State Park of several hundred trees is like a AAA farm club. And then you get the best players from that team that could make it into the big leagues, which is what we call the next step in the process, a large seed production orchard of several thousand trees which grow out close together um, and get rogued out and selected at the rate of only one tree out of 150. So out of 3000 trees, um, you would only select the best 20, but that's the way the process is working and it is working, it's, in it's inevitable. Uh, its success is inevitable and all that's needed is patience. And how many years would it take to to grow a, grow out a chestnut to its um, well, um, big stage. well I, I would say roughly 10 years for the for the inoculations and the selections to be done in a seed orchard by the time the last plot was planted right by the time a tree is 10 years old it's producing reliably reliable amount of nuts so a, a generation in the chestnut tree is you know only 7 to 10 years in terms of when they can start producing I mean, they even start, some trees even start producing earlier than that, especially some of the hybrids that um, they've been growing. And then on the other side, in terms of the GE chestnut with the OXO enzyme, that's not really eliminating the blight either. It just prevents the spread within the bark of the tree or within Correct. the tree. Right. right. Okay. Right. And that's been one of the concerns that's been raised about the. Uh, the OXO, the Darling 58, is, is the fact that it can actually be a blight reservoir. In other words, because the blight attacks the tree but doesn't kill the tree, it, um, the, host, the tree actually becomes a host for the fungus, which then spreads it out to more trees. Um, and so in that way, it's actually a threat to the remaining wild American trees, American chestnut trees that are in the forest. Um, there's an estimated 4 million or so wild American chestnut trees that are still out in the forest. Estimated 4, four million still wild in, in the forest. Right. And you were asking about other countries, and I briefly mentioned earlier about Canada, and there is a lot of concern by folks in Canada about this U.S. regulatory process um, because of the contamination issue. So if these genetically engineered Darling 58 trees are approved here, you know, it's not going to be very long before they wind up in Eastern Canada, um, especially because New York is such a focal point for the development of these trees, these genetically engineered trees in wild ecosystems. A lot of parks are getting ready for them here in the, in the uh, Western New York, for example. 
Canada is literally right across the Niagara River. Um, so the, the, the fact that that pollen is going to spread over into eastern Canada into southern Ontario, you know, it's not going to take very long. And climate change projections show the American chestnut range going quite significantly up into the Maritimes and into eastern Canadian provinces. So the expectation is that the range would increase towards the north as maybe temperatures are more unstable or warming. Is that what is that what you meant? Right. And the and the uh, people in Canada are afraid that this is going the if this Darling 58 chestnut is approved here in the US, it's going to harm their own American chestnut restoration pro projects. And Canada is focusing more on the back cross breeding. True. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what they're doing in terms of their their techniques, but I know they're not using the, and they don't want to use the genetic engineering. So it seems interesting that, to mention the Darling 58 only being around for three years, but the native chestnuts needing seven to 10 to actually produce, uh, actually flowering and producing pollen and producing nuts for the future. It does seem like a rather short time in just a three year, three year period. How many years total that the work has been going on for the genetically engineered chestnut? Well, I do know that um, that according to Susan Frankel's book, the New York chapter of TACF was the first to be established in 1990. Uh, but we we had always assumed that well, I guess at SUNY ESF they're doing genetic research. But I'm sure, given how huge New York State is that there are plenty of people growing out research orchards and seed production orchards like we were doing in Massachusetts only to find out that they never grew a single backcross orchard and always relied on uh, doing it through SUNY ESF. And then to read that, um, uh, that it's a shoestring operation when you have the support of a giant university and the professor's salary and all the expenses is taken care of compared to us who had to uh, pass the hat when our lawn tractor died. So uh, it's, it, we were a shoestring operation. They were funded through state government through the university. I just find it interesting that the New York chapter was the first chapter and that was their whole intention. So I guess, you know, the intention to do genetic engineering has been around for quite a while in the Chestnut Foundation. What it's a, just a little bit of history. That foundation was established in 83. They didn't plant their first trees until 1989 in Southwest Virginia. The following year, uh, New York became the first chapter, but they never did uh, chestnut growing. They only did genetic research. What is there to gain for moving these things forward as quickly as possible? It just seems so unnecessary to us. Like Lois said, you, you grow out hundreds, even thousands of trees to, uh, and, and obviously many of them die. They, they, uh, they don't look good either on their way down, but you'll get that one tree in an orchard that is a masterpiece. And then you, you use that in the breeding program. So that's how its success is inevitable. And the genetic engineering is completely unnecessary. Right, right. All the other chapters are doing back cross breeding. But now in retrospect, I look at that and I think, well, of course, 
they need all these other trees because they need to breed genetic diversity into the genetically engineered tree. So they need all as much diversity from you know pure American trees as they can get. So you know chapters. In fact, now many of the chapters of, of we were all doing back cross breeding. Now there's many chapters that are doing strictly what they call germplasm conservation orchards. So they're strictly planting American chestnuts that they know will not survive the blight for too many years, but they will be alive long enough for them to be able to take genetically engineered pollen and put it on those trees and you know, get genetic diversity and, and vice versa too, you know, putting the genetically engineered pollen onto pure American trees to get the diversity that they need for their program. I think, Anne, I wanted to turn to you and, and ask a little bit more about some of the social and economic uh, justice issues around the American chestnut. Are there, you know, specific issues that raise concerns or red flags about the GE tree itself being released back into Appalachian forests, somehow um, impacting forest-based economies in that area? Yes, def definitely. And we're working with one of the organizations we're working with is the Dogwood Alliance, which is down in the southern eastern forests. And uh, they are very op much opposed to the genetically engineered American chestnuts because of the door opening um, problem. You know, they're already facing industrial pine plantations down there. And they foresee the American chestnut as paving the way for an expansion of those industrial pine plantations, except this time they'll be engineered for whatever traits you know, industry decides they need pines to have, for example, the ability to kill insects or grow faster or, you know, whatever, um, or tolerate hotter temperatures, so, or freezing temperatures. So um, they're very concerned about the American chestnut for that reason, uh, and especially because they work with a lot of um, um, African American communities that are along the coastal forests there and they're already suffering from the impacts of biomass logging, you know, logging of the native forests for biomass electricity production, most of which most of the wood chips being shipped to the UK. Um, but now they're looking at the possibility of these GE tree plantations, which might also expand the biomass problem. So, you know, all of these things are directly connected and uh, um, Dog was very concerned about that. There's also a, a researcher at um, University of Georgia, Scott Merkel, who talks about the industrial production of American chestnuts and the different, uh, the, the economic value in that. So he's talking, he was talking about in a film uh, interview that he did, chestnuts being developed for wood production. It's very rot resistant wood. So being developed for, for wood production, for the various things that chestnuts can do, you know, nut production, obviously. Duke Energy put millions of dollars into genetically engineered tree research. Um, and they wanted chestnuts, as it turns out, for bioenergy production from the nuts. So they were hoping, they're infamous in the Appalachians for their mountaintop removal coal mining. And they saw the chestnuts as a tree that could grow on their mountaintop removal sites, which have been completely devastated and have soils that are, you know, practically useless. But they found out that chestnuts could grow there. Um, I don't know how well they grew there, but they could grow there. And so they were hoping for the genetically engineered chestnut to reforest, quote unquote, 
their mountaintop removal sites with these chestnut plantations. And at the time in 2013, when I went to an American Chestnut Foundation conference, there was someone who was talking about how the amount of sugar per acre that could be produced by chestnut trees was more than corn if you were talking about ethanol production. So, you know, it's they're talking, the researchers are talking about reforestation, conservation, and so on and so forth. But there is also this industrial production aspect that's being almost completely ignored. And does it seem like those, the industrial side of things has like clear economic benefits for the, or the, uh, the companies involved? Is it, is it a well, realistic Duke, operation? Duke has, uh, has since then not been putting so much funding into this. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, they are very quiet about it, of course, but I'm wondering if that didn't turn out to be quite the way that they had hoped that either the chestnuts don't grow very well on the mountaintop removal sites, or they found out it's turning the nuts into ethanol takes a long time, or I'm not sure, but um, it seems like for Duke Energy anyway, that was a bit of a pipe dream. We'll see, maybe they've got, maybe they've got their things going on behind the scenes and they're ready to jump when these, if these trees are approved, we'll see. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. Today we are talking with members of the campaign to stop GE trees about timber industry efforts to introduce genetically engineered American chestnut trees into our eastern forests. My guests are Ann Peterman, Executive Director of the Global Justice Ecology Project and Co-Founder and International Coordinator of the Campaign to Stop GE Trees, and Lois and Dennis Mellican, both retired from careers in the Massachusetts State Park System and longtime American chestnut advocates, breeders, and growers. This is a pre-recorded show, so we are not taking phone calls. Thank you. Let's move just to, towards that regulatory process within, uh, within the US government. And I know that there was a USDA comment period back in the fall of 2019 or 2020, sorry. Could you tell me kind of where the approval process, where the GE American chestnut tree stands within that kind of USDA approval process? Sure, so the petition submitted by researchers at uh, SUNY ESF was published by the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture this in August, I think around August 19th. And it had a 60 day public comment period. So people, the public, scientists, whoever wanted to had 60 days to, to submit comments about this petition, about their either their feel either their feelings about the chestnut and how much they do or don't want genetically engineered chestnuts in their backyards, or some of the scientists reviewing the science in the petition to, you know, as I mentioned, determine how valid or invalid that science is. There were 60 days of that. So the public comment period ended in late October. Uh, the USDA is now going through all those comments. And eventually, it looks like the process can go a number of different ways. But it looks like they will probably produce an environmental impact statement based on all those public comments and the petition um, in which they will look at the possible impacts of this tree, um, as, as well as its um, threat as a plant pest. It's, it's a little bit confusing the way their, their regulations work, but they look at this, they look at the chestnut and its, its um, potential to become a pest to other plants. It seems interesting that part of the process is, would the plant become a pest to other 
organisms say in the forest when it's already been kind of identified that it may be housing or you know containing the virus that would spread to other well, exactly. And that's that's where the Plant Pest Protection Act comes into play is that, you know, the, these trees could be a blight reservoir, which would endanger other trees. Um, so that's definitely a part of it. The National Academy of Sciences did a whole study on the potential for forest biotechnology to to be used in conservation. And some of the some of us at the um, Campaign to Stop GE Trees presented at that and then they came out with findings. And one of their key findings uh, in their conclusions was that there are the regulations um, are completely insufficient at the USDA, at the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, or at the EPA. They don't have regulations for dealing with genetically engineered trees. They have no idea how to regulate these things or even the questions that they need to ask about it. So the NAS was raising um, red flags about the regulatory process. So yeah, you have William Powell and other researchers saying, oh, the regulatory gauntlet. Meanwhile, the, the, the National Academy of Sciences is saying, actually, this regulatory process is really bad and in uh, very insufficient. So yeah, we're, we're concerned about how this is going to move forward. They are going to, it looks like they are, the researchers are going to need permission also from the EPA, as it looks like the EPA is going to consider the plant, the genetically engineered chestnut, a pesticide because of the fact that it has this fungal, this antifungal property built into it. Yes, and I feel like that was at, at kind of the heart of an issue maybe back in the 1980s when the, the new leaf potato that contained BT came out that it would be registered as a pesticide in order, would have to be registered as a pesticide in order to be grown. So if you're talking about the American chestnut as maybe a nut crop, food crop that is also registered as a pesticide, I could see that that might turn some people away, away from supporting that as a food crop. Right. And that's the other thing that, that I'm sure Lois and Dennis could speak to is the potential economic impacts of these trees on other chestnut growers. So, you know, organic chestnut growers, conventional hybrid growers who are, you know, stand to lose their markets if these things get contaminated with this GMO chestnut pollen. Right, that's right. Because most of the most of the chestnut growers that we grow are organic farmers. I mean, some of them are certified organic, but even the ones that are not certified organic consider themselves organic because they don't use any. There's nothing. They're not putting pesticides. They're not putting herbicides. They're putting nothing on those plants. They're just letting them grow naturally. So they're afraid of, like Ian said, pollen drift is one thing. And another thing that we've noticed who, what, that spreads chestnuts like crazies, believe it or not, is squirrels. Because if you know a tree is dropping a lot of nuts, those trees, those squirrels are going to pick up the trees and plant them elsewhere. We've we've had instances of two trees in our own yard were planted. We were like sorting nuts on our front porch, and you know a year later, up comes a chestnut tree nowhere near where we were working. And in our project at um, at Mount Eller in Munson, also we're finding new chestnut seedlings that are nowhere near other chestnuts, you know, growing. So it's not a, a nut that dropped from the tree. It's a nut that was brought there by some critter, most likely. So that they're kind of a, a concerned about that because especially people that are growing in Western Massachusetts where most of the agriculture is in Massachusetts, it's very close to the New York border. So, you know, that's a little bit too close for comfort for a lot of these people. Okay, so it seems like challenges just kind of regulating the, the science in the industry, but 
then you have nature kind of running running its own own course and maybe even more difficult to regulate the squirrels moving nuts around. Right, right. And I mean, given the fact that, you know, when they, if they genetically engineer a food crop, well, it's an annual crop and it's going to be another one next year. But a tree can, a chestnut tree especially, can live for 100, 200, 300. Chestnut trees live for a long time. If these darling 58 trees are deregulated, um, are approved for non-regulated status, then that means that people can take seedlings, can take uh, um, chestnuts, can take whatever they want and plant it anywhere. And it will be completely unregulated. We'll have, there will be no way to trace where these trees have gone, where they've been planted. So if something goes wrong in the future, suddenly we find out 10 or 12 years down the line that there's some terrible impact from this genetic engineering technology, they're, they're out there. They're, they're, you know, it, this is an irreversible experiment with our forests. And um, that's one of the reasons that people are so concerned about this and, you know, are, you know, joining our side why 109,000, I'm sorry, 125,000 people registered opposition during the public comment period to the genetically engineered Darling 58 chestnut. 109 organizations got on board with us all in a very quick period of time because they don't give you a lot of time between when they publish the petition and the end of the public comment period. So we had to we were really mobilize quickly. But there was a lot of concern by people. And that's one of the big reasons is this is irreversible. You know, once these things are approved, once they're deregulated and allowed to go anywhere, how do you, what do you do? You can't, there's nothing, there's no way to stop that if a problem is found later. No easy way to do the recall of like something on a grocery store shelf that needs to come, right. come back. Right. That's what, to me, the most, one of the most scariest parts is what if something goes wrong 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, how would they, how would they ever be able to take these trees back? They can't not if they're just allowed to plant them anywhere. So moving forward in that regulatory process, are there any upcoming dates that people should be aware of with changes from the Trump administration to the Biden, administ Biden administration? Any changes there, I guess, within the, within the US government? Um, I would say that there are no, I would, there's, there's no um, rosy horizon <laughs> for, <laughs> The, for, for the issue from our perspective with this, the change in uh, administrations. So I wouldn't say that there's a lot of hope there. The hope is, is in the, the huge opposition of people that are on the ground that don't want these trees. As far as the process though, um, the, the timing is really unclear. Um, with the genetically engineered eucalyptus tree, which was the last time the USDA considered uh, deregulating a genetically engineered tree, the process actually went on for years and didn't actually have a conclusion. It just sort of, you know, evaporated at the end. So I'm not sure, you know, there was never a decision on the genetically engineered eucalyptus tree. Will it come back? It's hard to say, but that was quite a few years ago. So with the chestnut, it's, it's hard to say if it will be six months from now, they'll have an environmental impact statement, or if it'll be a year from now, it's very hard to know. So we're trying to, you know, get organized and be prepared because while the USDA is closely working with the researchers, researchers on the next steps, they're not talking to us. In order to get information out for, for listeners on, on the radio show here, how, where, what are some good resources where people could go to find out more information or, um, or get involved if they choose to? The Stop GE Trees website, which is stopgetrees.org, has a bunch of different resources on it. 
Um, we also have a collection of public comments from different groups that we work with. So if people want to see some of the concerns that have been raised about the GE chestnut with the federal government, um, that's a really good place to see that. Our report, the white paper that Lois was referring to earlier, is also on there as well as petition, um, excuse me, petitions and ways that people can get involved if they so choose all kinds of different resources. And uh, I imagine that there's resources that Lois has as well. Um, yeah, actually, a, a good a good website to go to would be the um, the Seeds of Solidarity in in uh, Orange Mass has a festival called the Garlic and Arts Festival that's been going on for probably 25 years. So we were supposed to have a booth at the at the Garlic and Arts Festival this year, but of course with the COVID, they did not have a festival. So they kind of decided to do everything virtually. So we do have I do I made like two like two minute little videos, three little short chestnut videos on there. One is about chestnut history. One is about the project going on in Munson. And the other one is about uh, chestnuts as a food crop. And they're real short, like two, three minutes. But if you go on to the um, Garlic and Arts Festival 2020 and look under food uh, producers, where like the first, um, the American chestnut is like the first clip on there. So that's a little bit of just background information about chestnuts in general. And then American Chestnut Cooperatives Foundation is also um, a, a resource. Although there are, like Dennis said, there are a, you know small operation, you know, uh, you know retired college professors and stuff. So it's not they don't have the funding and stuff that American Chestnut has. Another one, another good place to look up is um, uh, Big River Chestnut, and that's a, a gentleman named John O'Niger, and he's um, the one of the representatives of Regen the Regenerative Design Group, and he's very much into agroforestry and uh, all that sort of stuff. So he has a really great website on um, and with a lot of information on chestnuts. He he plans to be selling chestnuts in probably about three more years uh, off of his property, and there is a, there's actually a, another a, a small. Um, chestnut farm in Amherst, Massachusetts called Sunset Farm. And that's where we generally buy a lot of our chestnuts. He's the, he has um, Dunstan chestnuts, which are a hybrid, uh, mostly Chinese tree, but he's had that since going since like the mid 1980s. And he sells, he sells tons of chestnuts every, every, uh, every fall. Cape Cod Food Initiative, they do a little bit with chestnut trees. So it's really just a, a beginning industry now, but it's, it's definitely you know, we went to a we went to a uh, like a little uh, open house at Jarno's farm, and there was a lot of other people. You know, people out there that were growing apple orchards that decided to take a couple of acres and put it into chestnut trees, also. Because really, once it's a great crop, once it gets going, it needs very little care. It's you know just you know easy to harvest and stuff. So it, it's really a great it's food security. You know, and we find a lot of people here. A lot of times when we do presentations, we find people asking to just you know, can I grow two or three chestnuts? in your yard and we say, sure, yeah, we live on a quarter of an acre and we've got eight chestnut trees right now. So yeah, it's definitely possible. <laughs> we've covered a lot of great info today and are there any other kind of closing thoughts before we, before we wrap up towards the end of our time here? I'll just quickly just mention that, um, you know, chestnut, restoring the chestnut to the forest is being proposed as a way to uh, bring back the native ecosystems in the eastern forests. And there are so many threats to the eastern forests right now. What we're trying to do is get to those root causes 
to actually look at what is driving these forest problems. Um, Lois and Dennis mentioned a couple of times global trade is one of those issues, yeah. bringing in, you know, the, the global trade in raw logs and wood chips driving this um, import and export of pests and pathogens into the forest that's just wreaking havoc. Climate change is another one, deforestation, you know, the overconsumption of pulp and paper products. All of these things are the biomass problem, you know, turning trees into electricity as a so-called solution to climate change. All of these things are, are driving, you know, huge destruction of our forests and moving in the direction of genetic engineering to address these issues is, it doesn't make any sense. You know, there's all these risks and um, no real benefits. Right, I think that forests are very complicated and very long lived and, and very fragile. I mean, people are just beginning to understand the actual dynamics of a forest. And I think introducing something like a genetically engineered chestnut tree without any regulation or just to, to you know, freely, you know, spread, I, I think it would be pretty dangerous. The innocence of the, and the hopefulness of the chestnut restoration is forever harmed by being linked to Monsanto. You can tell the kind of company it costs surrounds itself with and uh, Monsanto is no partner to do anything good. It, I don't think you'll ever hear Neil Young do a song bashing back crossbreeding, but he's taken on Monsanto, so. So we've come to the end of our show today and I'd like to thank our guests for being here on Common Ground Radio. So I'd like to thank Ann Peterman, who is the Executive Director of the Global Justice Ecology Project. Thank you for being here today, Ann. Thanks so, very much for the opportunity. And then I would also like to thank Lois and Dennis Mellican from Massachusetts and their longtime work with the American Chestnuts. And I really appreciate you folks joining me here for the show today. Yeah, thank you very thank much you. for inviting us. You've been listening to Common Ground Radio. Thank you for tuning in today. And we look forward to seeing you again next month. Please stay tuned for more great programming. <laughs>